Well, good morning and happy Easter. He is risen. All right, like a handful of you got that. Sorry, I totally just read to you like a church secret handshake. Um, if you didn't grow up in church or uh, you're not familiar with just that wasn't a part of your tradition, uh, one of the traditions that's been handed down over the, the centuries to us is uh, when somebody says on Easter Sunday, as we are you know, remembering uh, what happened on this day 2,000 years ago, uh, somebody says, he is risen, uh, you respond back, he is risen indeed. So let's try that again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Good job. You got it. Well, uh, I don't know if you're anything like me, but, but something happens, it's just like clockwork for me. Anytime that you know, we're around like Easter or Christmas, something where there's like traditions that are handed down to us and increased activity, and I always find myself asking questions, and maybe it's just a doubter and skeptic in me, just asking like, why do we do some of the things we do? And why on March 31st, 2013, are we gathered in a room to remember a man who lived and died in a remote area on the other side of the world, right, 2,000 years after the fact. Like, have you ever just stopped and paused long enough to just reflect on that? Uh, how in the world this happened? Because you know that there were many men who came before Jesus who said and claimed to have some unique connection to God, right? Self-proclaimed prophets and messiahs, saviors, and there have been many more that have come after him, but, but none of them have had even a fraction of a fraction of the impact that this man Jesus has had. Have you ever stopped long enough just to reflect on that, to wonder why in the world that is? Have you ever wondered, have you ever stopped just to wonder this man Jesus and to reflect just on the, the unmatched impact that he has had in the world in which we live? Right, I'll give you an example of what I mean. If you rewind the clock back, uh, just three years, my wife Megan and I were living in Pasadena, California with our two girls. And if you were to hop on the I-5 and go north, eventually you would run into San Francisco. Right? Why in the world is, is there a San Francisco? Well, there's a San Francisco because there was a man named Francis of Assisi who lived with such love and such generosity that people started naming cities after him. And he did this because of a man named Jesus. Right? And on the way there, you would pass by San Jose, California. Right? Why is there a San Jose? Well, because once there was a, a man named Joseph whose life was changed by a man named Jesus. Right? And if you kept on driving a little bit further, you'd run into Sacramento, California. Well, why is there a Sacramento, California? Well, because once this man Jesus had a meal to introduce this radical idea that God loves us so much that he suffers. And that meal became a holy practice. It became a sacrament. Right, fast forward the clock to today, and here we are in Lincoln, Nebraska. Right, why is there a Lincoln? Well, because once there was a president who had shaped the future of our nation and who led from a place of deep personal faith in a man named Jesus. I mean, you can't even look at a map without seeing the impact of this man everywhere. Right, to quote uh, a guy, pastor author by the name of John Ortberg, who I'm drawing very heavily from this morning. It is in Jesus' name that desperate people pray, grateful people worship, and angry people swear. From christenings to weddings to sick rooms to funerals, it is in Jesus' name that people are hatched, matched, patched, and dispatched. The instrument on which his enemies killed him marks more graves and adorns more jewelry and is the single most recognized symbol in the entire world. 
right? And this is totally backwards. Normally when somebody dies, right, their influence immediately starts to recede, right? So a year and a half ago about, right, we mourned the passing of the father of all things, Apple, Steve Jobs, right? And, and there was a quote that was bouncing around Facebook about that time. I'm sure a lot of you saw it. And it goes like this. Uh, Ten years ago, our world had Bob Hope, Johnny Cash, and Steve Jobs. Now we have no jobs, no cash, and no hope. Right? And all the Republicans said, amen. No. No, don't. Don't say that. <laughs> right? But Jesus somehow turned this normal human trajectory completely upside down. 100 years after his death, he was more influential than when he lived. 500 years after his death, his influence grew still. Right? A thousand years after his death, his legacy laid the foundation for much of Europe. And now 2,000 years after his death, he has more followers in more places than ever before. Right? Jesus' influence continues to spread and mark our world despite the many who have opposed him over the centuries. And maybe more impressive, in spite of the many Fruit Loops and Nuts who claim to follow him. His influence grows still. One historian from Yale uh, said this, Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of supermagnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Right? This from a man who, I mean, you would have been hard-pressed to choose a less likely candidate to change the world. Right? Consider for a moment that Jesus never held an office, he never led an army, he never wrote a book, he never traveled abroad, and his followers were remarkably unimportant. Right? The New Testament itself says that they were ordinary, unschooled men. And yet, 2,000 years later, we can hardly imagine the world without him. See, wherever you are in your faith journey this morning, whatever you might believe or not believe about Jesus, no matter what you feel about claims of divinity, right, all of us have to wrestle with this question, who was this man? Who was this man who has marked our world so profoundly? And this morning, I want to challenge you to do that. And so this Easter, 2013, uh, I want to spend time looking uh, not just on what happened on this day 2,000 years ago, but what took place in the days and the months and the years to follow. And I dare you this morning to let down your guard enough to just marvel at this man, Jesus. Because I don't think that most of us even have an idea about just how profound his impact has been on this world in almost every sphere of life, right? To begin with, uh, he gave the world this most influential movement, all right? Just imagine for, for a moment a world where there's no church, no Notre Dame, no St. Paul's Cathedral, no storefront churches in the South, no house churches in China, no Mosaic Lincoln, no gatherings in Africa or Asia or South America, no Peter or Paul or Timothy or Augustine or Aquinas or Mother Teresa or Desmond Tutu or Joan of Arc. Right? But just look even just at the idea itself of the church. In the ancient world, there were yeah, nations, uh, there were families, there were ethnic groups, there were guilds, there were tribal religions, there were philosophical schools, and the church was none of these things. In Colossians 3.11, Paul writes this about this movement of Jesus. He says, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, free but Christ is all and in all, right? Where before the church 
was there a vision of a transformational community, a single transformational community that included every single human being, regardless of language, wealth, gender, ethnicity, or status. Before Jesus, it didn't exist. This was his idea. This began with Jesus. And astoundingly, it actually happened. It actually happened. Even now, 2,000 years later, here we are gathered in the old pavilion today to, to remember Easter. And as we do, Millions upon millions upon millions of people all over the world of all different languages, of all different cultures will gather as his church to remember this man. Who was this man? Just think about for a moment the smattering of people that, that claim the name of Jesus that he brings together in a way that only he can. Men like Jesse Jackson and Jerry Falwell, Jim Wallace and Jib Dobson, Billy Graham and Billy Sunday, and Bill Clinton and Bill Shakespeare. Bono and Bach and Bieber, <laughs> Galileo and Newton, George Washington and Denzel Washington, Constantine and Charlemagne, Sarah Palin and Barack Obama, from John Milton and Peter the Great to Mr. Johnny Cash and Mr. Rogers. Jesus brings these people together. Who else could do that? Right? This was a vision of Jesus' church. It was his. It began with him. And I'm not saying that without Jesus that there never would have been any vision for a shared humanity, family, amongst all people. But what I am saying is that as a historical reality, it started with this crucified carpenter. Who was this man? Jesus changed how we think about history. Prior to Jesus, most cultures thought of existence in terms of cycles, just an endless repetition of ups and downs, highs and lows. Right? Events were dated in reference to leaders and rulers such as year one of the reign of Augustus and so on. But over time, the power of Caesar and every Caesar began to fade as another vision grew more compelling. By the 6th century, a Scythian monk proposed a new calendar that was based not on the founding of Rome, but on the birth of Jesus. And the creation of this calendar was more than just a chronological convenience. This was a claim. It was an idea. That, 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 that history is not just an endless, meaningless cycle of ups and downs, but that all of it is going somewhere, that there is meaning to it, and that the one event critical to all of it is the life of this Jewish carpenter. Jesus lived and died, and Caesar never heard even a hint of his existence. But Jesus was called by his disciple John, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And this was more than just a poetic fr- phrase. This was, this was an idea as well. And the idea was that, that Jesus was not just a king. He, just, he was not just even the greatest king. But if you took every ruler, every leader, every king before him and put them in a group, Jesus is their king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And if you lived in the time of Jesus, if you lived in the first century, this would have been laughable. Right? And for some of you here, maybe it still is. Right? And I get that. But consider this, that 2,000 years later, how interesting is it that we give to our children names like Peter, Paul, and Mary, and we give our dogs name like, names like Caesar and Nero. <laughs> and i got to give credit to John Orberg for that line. That's good. 2,000 years after this man's birth, every time any human being on the planet looks at a calendar we are reminded daily that Jesus Christ has become, quite literally, the hinge point of all history. That Nero died 
in the year of our Lord, 68. That Napoleon died in the year of our Lord, 1828. And that Joseph Stalin, the dictator, died in the year of our Lord, 1953. And maybe Jesus was not the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, but how strange is it that now that every ruler who has ever lived and every nation that rises and falls must be dated in reference to this man, Jesus? Who is this man? Jesus would change how the world expresses compassion. You know, the ancient world was a lot darker and a lot crueler than most people realize. In the ancient Greece and Rome, the weak and the marginal were not often valued. In fact, many of them were deemed not worthy for life, which is why most children were not even given a name until about the eighth day after their birth or so, because many of them uh, were either murdered or they're killed and left to die. A guy by the name of... uh, well, a first century Roman writer named Seneca, he wrote that we drown children at birth when they are weak and abnormal. Right? This is just the way that, that things were. A guy by the name of Rodney Starks has written about this, that in the ancient world there were 1.4 million boys to every 1 million girls, mostly because the other 400,000 baby girls were left to die. It's the way that things were. But then something happened. This strange little community called the church remembered that they followed a man who said, let the children come to me. And they started to take in these children. And all of a sudden, they, they, they started something called godparents. So if, if parents died, their children would be taken care of, which happened quite a lot in that culture. And then people started, the whole culture started to transform. And people, rather than leaving their children to die when they were sick or they were weak or they were just female, they would actually bring them uh, to these monasteries and began dropping their children off. And the monks, these Christ-following monks, would br- take the children in. And this was the beginning of orphanages. And these changes would become so culturally transformational that one book about them is simply entitled When Children Became People, The Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. Widows were actually fined by Rome for out-surviving their husbands because they were considered a drag on the economy left to fend for themselves without status or education. They often struggled to survive. But then something happened. This people called the church, this movement of Jesus taking their cue from him, began to take in the widows, began taking care of them. The way that Jesus viewed and treated women would transform an entire civilization and will one day change the world. In the 4th century, what was essentially a first hospital was begun by a follower of Jesus named Benedict. And by the 6th century, it was not uncommon for monasteries to have attached to them hospitals. And over time, this idea that we ought to have compassion on anyone who is suffering began to spread. So much so that by the Geneva Convention, an organization, organization was founded to alleviate human suffering. And they chose as their symbol a large cross placed on a flag called the Red Cross. See, every time that you hear groups like the Salvation Army or World Vision or YMCA or the International Justice League or Goodwill or Habitat for Humanity or Compassion International, when you go to hospitals with names like the Good Samaritan or the Good Shepherd or St. Elizabeth's, you see the touch of Jesus. Before him, the weak, the disabled, the autistic, the mentally ill were viewed by our ancient ancestors as burdens to be discarded. Uh, We drowned them 
but to see them as divine image bearers who teach us, who make us better, who are worthy of the best of our time and our attention and our love and our affection and our sacrifice. This came from Jesus. This was his vision, and it changed the world. Right? And this is not to say that compassion never would have been expressed. Of course it would have been. Right? And, and oftentimes those of us who claim the name of Jesus fall far short and get it wrong. But one scholar writes this, that if, what is, if you ask what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion, I would suggest that wherever you have an institute, institution of self-giving for the lowly, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages, for those who will never be able to repay, it probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. Who is this man? The Jesus movement shaped education. Human beings have always loved to learn, but in the Greco-Roman world, that was typically reserved for only men and almost always men of elite families. If you were a woman, you probably did not have access to education. If you were a slave, you definitely did not. But then, all of a sudden, this strange group of people, right? this didn't happen by accident, all of a sudden, this gr- strange group of people called the church began to teach. They remembered that they followed a man who taught everyone and whose final words were to charge them to go and do the same. And so they began to teach everyone, slave and free, male and female. About the fourth century, some of the Jesus followers entered into monastic communities. And for many centuries, these, these were the only institutions that worked for the preservation of literature. And not just Christian literature, but classic pagan texts as well. And then churches began to build schools in order to educate and empower people. And then arose universities, right? Most people don't get this. The university first of, of Paris about the 12th century, and then Cambridge, and then Oxford. You know what the motto of Oxford is? The Lord is my light. Right and after that, Harvard and Yale, right? Just this week on Twitter, came across an image popped up in my Twitter feed of the founding statement of Yale or excuse me, Harvard University, and this is what it reads, and I quote, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John seventeen three, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. It's the founding mission statement of Harvard University. Right up until the Civil War, 92% of all colleges and universities that were begun were started in this man's name. Right when the Reformation came, Martin Luther and men like him had a vision that all men, all women, all people should be able to read the Bible for themselves. And out of this birthed a vision for universal literacy. In America, in this country, the very first law to require public funding for mass education was in the 17th century in Massachusetts. And it was called this, and I quote, the Old Deluder Satan Act. Because it was crafted by followers of Jesus who believed that ignorance was something that was very dark and very satanic and believed that God desired for all people to have the opportunity to learn so that they can thrive and know God more fully. In fact, Alfred North Whitehead, who was one of the dominant thinkers of the 16th, or excuse me, 20th century, somebody asked him one time, what made it possible for science to emerge. And this is what he said. It was the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. 
Right now, again, this is not to say that science, the study of science, would not have otherwise emerged. It certainly would have been. But the fact is, as one scholar puts it, science as an organized, sustained enterprise arose only once in human history, in Europe, in a civilization then called Christendom. Or the greatest explosion of technology in the Middle Ages was in Jesus following monastic communities. Mechanical clocks were developed by monks so they would know when to pray. Eyeglasses were created by monks so that they could pour over uh, texts. Just last month, a good friend invited me to join him uh, on a mission trip to a Slavic country in Europe. The alphabet of the Slavic people is called Cyrillic. And it was started when a man who would later become known as Saint Cyril came to the, the Slavic peoples and realized that they had no way to write or to read about Jesus themselves. And so he set about giving them an alphabet to do so. And this happened over and over and over again. All over the world, followers of Jesus would come to a people whose language was not committed to writing, and they would set about the task. They wrote the first grammars. They wrote the first dictionaries. They developed the first alphabets. The first important proper name written in more languages than any other is Jesus. And his story, the Gospels, has been translated into over 2,200 languages. And no other text in the history of humanity has been translated one-fifth of that many times. Who is this man? He revolutionized art. Consider for a fact that nobody really knows what Jesus looked like. We have no photographs, no paintings, no sculptures, not even a physical description. And yet Jesus and his followers became the most frequent subjects for art in the entire world. His image settled on in Byzantine art about AD 400 is the most recognized in history, right? Without Jesus, there is no Dante whose divine comedy shaped the language of a time. There's no Martin Luther whose German Bible shaped the German language. There is no King James Version who, along with Shakespeare, shaped the English language. There's no Johannes Box who signed all of his works to the glory of God. No Hallelujah Chorus, no Mozart Requiem, no Gregorian Chants. And by the way, modern music notation was created by the medieval church just so that musical worship of Jesus could be enjoyed and spread all over the world. That's where we got this stuff. Imagine no Sistine Chapel, no Da Vinci's Last Supper. I mean, there is no transcendent vision of reality that has captured the human imagination as this man, Jesus. And lastly, he changed how we think about human rights and dignity. And we have a very famous statement here in the U.S. Probably all of us know it, familiar with it, and it goes like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and have been endowed by their creator with certain rights. You hear that? Can you marinate with with me for a moment on that? Did you hear that? And that's an idea. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and have been endowed by their creator with certain rights. That idea came from somewhere because that was not self-evident in the ancient world. Where did that come from? When Jesus came and he said that, that God is like a father who is filled with unquenchable love for every human being, his followers recognized that there were serious implications to that statement. And so when it was written, you know, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. They recognized that there were implications to that, that every human being had value. Thomas Cahill, who wrote a little book called How the Irish Saved Civilization, wrote this. He said, this is the first expression of egalitarianism in human literature. And it came from this man, Jesus. Now, often Christians and civilizations have gotten this wrong and we've dropped the ball. But isn't it interesting how this power of this movement of Jesus refuses to be submerged, right? Which is why, as you look at human history and all the Reformation movements for things like the abolition of slavery or the elevation of women, which you find is over and over and over, these were overwhelmingly led by followers and lovers of this man, Jesus, who said, I'll give my life to that, and who do still. He uniquely taught love of enemies, which I don't have to tell you is not a natural idea. It's not what we naturally feel or how we naturally respond. Conan the Barbarian was actually paraphrasing Genghis Khan when he gave his famous answer to what is best in life. And Conan said this, to crush your enemies, see them driven before you and hear the lamentations of their women. But there was a man who said what is best in life is to turn the other cheek, to go with them two miles, to love your enemies. And this was more than just an idea. This is the man about whom it is written, as he suffered and hung on the cross, prayed for the men who put him there, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And whose followers remembered this, began to die the same way. Nero would actually take followers of Jesus and cover them in pitch and use them as human torches for his gladiator fights. And this went on and off for centuries. And the response of these men and women, this movement of Jesus, was not to dream of revenge or to to spark and lead a, a, a violent revolt against that. Their response was actually more love. And this response was so different and it was so unique to this particular people, to this movement of Jesus, that a historian named Hannah Arendt, who is not a Christian, by the way, wrote that the discoverer, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. Who was this man? He inspired a man named Tolstoy to write a book called Resurrection, which in turn inspired a man, a lawyer named Gandhi, to initiate a movement of reconciliation. And in his last letter to anybody outside of his family, Tolstoy wrote to Gandhi, praising this this self-sacrificing love of Jesus. And in the most famous speech in the United States in the 20th century, Martin Luther King actually departed from his script when he was at the mall in Washington, D.C. to quote a Bible verse when he said, that justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And that crowd got worked up, and they started to respond and talk at Martin Luther, you know, like, not like a Mosaic Lincoln crowd, but like a Southern black church crowd. They're like, preach it! Amen! Bring it! And one of Martin Luther King's friends in the crowd spoke up and said, tell him about the dream, Martin. And he started... He said, I have a dream. 
And he began to describe this world where, where his children would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And he began to describe this world where, where children of all different races and all different colors would join hands as a unified humanity of a, a dream of a world that was not yet, but that one day would be. Where did that dream come from? That was not a secular dream. That was a dream inspired by the one that Martin Luther King followed. And it brings us together in this room on Easter, March 31st, 2013. This man, Jesus. And you know, maybe, maybe it's all just happenstance. Maybe, maybe Jesus just so happened to be born at just the right time, at just the right place. Right? Maybe it was all just dumb luck. Or maybe Jesus was who he said he was, who his followers affirmed him to be, and who I would argue all of history testifies to, and that is that Jesus was not just a man, but that he was God's son, God in the flesh, walking amongst us, coming to finally give us the chance to be free of the power of sin, of our own mistakes, failures, and shortcomings, our own doubts and misgivings, all the ways in which we fall flat, to reconcile us back to God. And in so doing, for all who had surrendered their life into his hands, would not only be transformed themselves, but as history testifies to, would then be moved by Jesus to continue to change the world. And if that is true, then the question we should be asking on this Easter is not who was this man, but who is this man? Who is this man? And what are the implications of his invitation to come and see? Taste and see. Come and see if it's true. Come and experience it for yourself. I dare you. See what God does, not only in your life, but through your life as a part of the community of God's people. And it is an, an invitation not to an easy life and not to a convenient life, but it is an invitation to the only life worth living and the only life that is made possible through what happened 2,000 years ago on this day. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for us as a community of your people, for those of us who would call ourselves your followers, your disciples, that you would continue to form us and reform us and transform us, that you would free us of our own selfishness in order to be used by you in this city and in this world. And Lord God, I pray for those in this room who have been resistant for whatever reason to acknowledge that perhaps, just maybe, you are who you said you were, who your followers affirmed you to be and what all of history testifies to, and that is that you are our Savior, that your work is not finished, that you are not only the God who saved, but you are the God who saves And so, Lord, we come before you as a community just in awe of who you are. 
of what you have accomplished in our midst, of all that you have done throughout human history, just as you said you would, what else can we do but worship? What else can we do but praise you that 2,000 years ago on this day, you got up and walked out of that tomb in victory over sin and death so that we could be your sons and daughters, free from the power of sin, free from our own misgivings and failures, and empowered to change the world. Lord, continue to make us into that kind of people as we come before you and worship you now and give you our offerings. Amen.